Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where, as humans, we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving forests and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. Please subscribe or follow Shared Ground, either from the website or wherever you get your podcasts. I will be pausing production of episodes for a little while and want to know that folks will be alerted once Shared Ground resumes. Also, I may put out an odd bonus episode in the meantime, so please do take a moment now to subscribe. I will say a bit more about this decision later, but first, on to episode number 10, which I am very excited about. This conversation was recorded towards the end of the berry ripening moon, as it is called in the Mi'kmaq culture. As of the release date of this episode on September 13th, the full moon of the mate calling moon occurred three days ago, and in just under two weeks on September 25th, a new harvest moon will appear. You will hear more about this from our guest, Sean Feener. Sean and I met where the Sebeganegadi and Kesbiktwik districts of Mi'kma'ki meet on the eastern side, on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I was so honored to have a Mi'kmaq knowledge keeper join us as our guest for this episode, as well as a bit about the moon cycles and how they relate to understanding plants and animals. Sean talked about the importance for school students in learning about Mi'kmaq culture and all cultures, and with them learning to be comfortable with cultural diversity. Sean also shared about Nedigalumk, which is a way of living and he talked about some of their relationships in the forest, and amongst other things, the role of tobacco in setting intentions and showing respect. Sean Feener is a Mi'kmaq knowledge holder and a conservationist. He has worked in the conservation field for many years as a fish biologist, and he recently entered the education field. Sean has lived close to Pijinawiska, or the Lahave River, his whole life, and he has had the pleasure of working with some of the beings that call Pijinawiska home. He completed a diploma in wildlife conservation at Holland College in Prince Edward Island, a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Management at the University of New Brunswick, and is currently working on a Bachelor of Education at St. FX in Nova Scotia. We start off by hearing Sean describe the lovely location where we had this conversation. So we are in uh, a lovely little park in, in the municipality of, of Lunenburg, uh, Miller Point Peace Park. We're surrounded by kind of an early successional Acadian forest with uh, a couple of red pines planted throughout. Um, it has uh, pretty good cover over us with all of the uh, evergreens, the pines. And right now we are in kind of early fall, late summer. So the leaves are nice and thick. So all of the uh, deciduous trees are giving us some nice cover as well. And the sun is at a beautiful angle to shine directly on us through the trees. 
So it's uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is a beautiful day, and the sun just came out as yeah, you were yeah. describing <laughs> the place. So that was a nice, a nice touch. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'm just going to share again. I told you as we walked in, but it was just such a magical memory I have of this place when I was here with my aunt um, a few years ago, and it was a it was an overcast day, and uh, and those red pines you were talking about, which I, I have a hard time recognizing on this type of day in a mixed forest, but on that day, mm-hmm. um, it was like special red pine vision, and they just jumped out at us everywhere. You know, we could just see these red trunks everywhere in the uh, in the dimmer kind of lighting, which is really <laughs> neat. Would you mind just maybe saying a little bit about yourself and, yeah, what, sure. what you do? Yeah. Or what you- I am. Uh, I come from the guestbook district of Mi'kma'ki, which is the uh, a couple translations. One is the land's end because it is the end of the land of Nova Scotia, um, but also it translates to the last flow because that is where the last flow of the rivers is in Nova Scotia. I grew up here. Um, and I uh, went to school in, in the public schools here, and now I work for the public school center for education um, as their uh, regional coordinator for Mi'kmaq services. So I get to co- coordinate all of the services that support our indigenous students in the region, which has been uh, an incredibly amazing um, and inclusive position. And I've been able to learn so much during my time there. I started last August, so only a short time with them, one full school year. Um, but uh, I've learned so much. Um, I am uh, Mi'kmaq from this region. Uh, my family comes from the uh, Lahave River. I guess uh, some of the things that I've learned um, from traditional knowledge uh, that's been gifted to me is uh, the medicines, so traditional Mi'kmaq medicines, um, uh, some of the ceremonies, um, and then also uh, kind of uh, Mi'kmaq moons, um, what, what time to harvest certain animals, certain, certain beings, and how to respectfully harvest and uh, process everything. Traditionally, so um, prior to, to contact, each of the rivers or, or larger clusters of rivers um, would have had uh, a community. And within that community, there, there would have been a, a couple of families. And um, the Mi'kmaq were... Uh, pre-contact um, semi-nomadic, which means uh, annually they would be uh, traveling or migrating. And the migration here would have been from uh, inland at the upper reaches of the river um, and down downstream to the ocean every year. And this, this was, and then back up to the inland area for the winter. So during the winter months um, and late fall where you would start to harvest kind of those larger larger mammals um, like moose or caribou um, that was kind of the the time to go upstream get to the, your um, your inland area um, usually around lakes and uh, and live there for the winter and you'll be living on dried meats and um, uh, preserve um, fruits like uh, berries and then also, if there was a larger man- mammal harvest, you would be surviving off of that. And then in the spring, um, we would have uh, kind of migrated downstream towards the ocean. Um, because as you know, here in the spring and summer, the oceans are rich with with food, with fish, with mammals, uh, seals. Um, and, uh, and, and that migration would be linked with the moon cycles because the animals were linked with the moon cycles. So that movement um, was 
was both moon cycle and animal dependent. So mm -hmm. fish migrating upstream would trigger our migration downstream, um, and uh, and vice versa. Okay, so you'd be you'd be watching the fish to know when to. to yeah, and and other things, not so much just the fish, but mm. the fish were a large part of kind of that early migration downstream because that's a, a very plentiful resource. Um, but other things like the moon, um, because the fish would be dependent on that moon cycle to know when to come upstream. Mm. Um, we were dependent on the moon cycle and the fish to know when to go downstream. I see. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and when you say the upper reaches of the of the river system for your um, family group, where where would that be in today's mm -hmm. geographical names? So I, I guess um, well the Lahave River is, is quite large and it and it expands through um, from Lunenburg into I believe Kings County, which is the neighboring county on the other side. Um, so the upper reaches would be kind of where uh, where that river gains its headwaters. Uh, the headwaters of the Lahave is in a couple of different places because it branches off so much. Um, but this would be areas like uh, at the lower extent, New Germany, um, and then at the upper extent in some of the, the uh, wilderness areas um, closer to Kings County. Okay. So like, uh, uh, I believe the lake is named Gasparo Lake, mm. um, which is the larger lake that, that uh, La Have gets the upper headwaters from. I'll have to look at a map. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, did you want to talk about the kind of the work you do with kids, um, educating them in, in Mi'kmaq knowledge as well? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so I guess uh, my role in, in the, uh, the Regional Center for Education uh, would be kind of inclusion of culture, connecting students back to their culture, um, connecting students to cultural pieces that they may not have, um, even if they have other cultural pieces, and uh, and, and just making sure that they feel um, like the, the work that they're doing in school and the resources that they're using are culturally relevant to them. Um, I also uh, help support our student support workers, which are uh, positions within the region that directly support students in schools um, and and give the students a safe place and a safe person within the school. Um, also, so facilitating those those cultural um, connections would would look like bringing knowledge keepers and elders into the schools, leading ceremonies, leading knowledge sharing times, um, giving them spaces to to do that, and uh, and allowing that authentic um, uh, cultural knowledge sharing to happen. Hmm. Yeah. And then also outside of the students, um, being there for regional staff like uh, teachers, principals, um, and then uh, our kind of regional education lead team. So the ones that are leading all of the professional development for the region, uh, making sure that uh, everyone has anything that they need to feel supported. Uh, providing all of those staff with, with cultural teachings and uh, making sure that they feel comfortable when, uh, when including any indigenous or Mi'kmaq culture or making sure that they have the resources to include that culture in everything that they do. And, and you want kids that don't have a Mi'kmaq background to be able to learn um, about the traditions and the, yeah, and the way yeah. of being too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so important um, that everyone gets a, a certain level of knowledge about our Mi'kmaq um, culture and our and the history in Nova Scotia. Um, it's also really important to to kind of um, foster that allyship in the schools. So at at early ages, we really um, really want to 
kind of get every student in that school comfortable with uh, cultural pieces from from Mi'kmaq culture or any indigenous culture, um, but also all cultures, not even if they're included in the school, but just a really diverse cultural teaching so that they feel comfortable um, when they do see different cultures or um, they, they have a they have more tools in their toolbox when it comes to um, asking questions or uh, connecting with people from different cultures Mm -hmm. uh, so that they can do it respectfully and uh, they understand what it means to be culturally diverse. Yeah, that sounds really important and so different from when most of us went to school probably. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just realizing there's like lots of background kind of more general stuff that I want to know because I don't know as much about any of this as Mm -hmm. I would like to know, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Um, so when when you say um, elders would come in and all and, and knowledge keepers would come in and um, for folks that don't know you or can't see you because this is an audio um, recording, obviously uh, you're a pretty young guy. Yeah. yeah. So um, how long have you you know been considered a knowledge keeper, or mm-hmm. how, how did you become that? Yeah. So I mean, you know, being a knowledge keeper or an elder for that matter is uh, is not really something that um, you become. Um, it's something that you are. Um, that, a, that a community accepts, basically. So, so if if you hold traditional knowledge, um, authentic traditional knowledge, and you, um, it, it's true to the authentic culture, and you share it. In my opinion, if you were to share it and make that um, accessible to our to our younger generation, um, then then you would be a knowledge keeper. And I think it's really important that. One that knowledge is 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 authentic, um, because if we keep moving away from from authentic cultural teachings, uh, then we will have lost some of those authentic cultural teachings. So it, it's very important that the knowledge and, and culture is authentic, but it's also important that we share that knowledge um, as much as we can, because knowledge is is uh, a gift, um, and it, it's given by someone who is gifted that by someone else and and so on so as a knowledge holder i think it's it's very important and it's almost a a responsibility that you have to share that knowledge further within your community um and and outside of your community Uh, because it is it it's not yours it's it's the collectives it's the community's um uh, knowledge it's their gift so the, the same thing goes for for elders um you know there are certain teachings and certain um, ways of living that an elder would have um, and an elder it's not a title that you receive and then you're just an elder for life um, it's a way of life and and a, and a set of knowledge um, that you have as an elder um, so the community deems you an elder it's not something that you check a couple boxes and then you become an elder it's it's um, living to a certain standard and set of knowledge and and living by that and and sharing that with people that makes you an elder and it has to be a community or the collective that acknowledge you as an elder and the same goes for knowledge keeper mm. mm-hmm. mm. with knowledge keeper it's it's generally if if you have knowledge on certain aspects of the culture um, but not kind of a, a more holistic knowledge set and and elders um, don't have a, a holistic knowledge set of every single cultural piece as as uh, the same way for knowledge keepers and any person uh, in the community um, they don't have you know every 
every ceremony, every uh, cultural piece in their brain. They don't have it all. <laughs> no one does. Uh -huh. um, but as the community and as the collective of elders, every piece is there. Mm -hmm. So um, you don't have to know everything. No one, no one does. Mm -hmm. uh, because another thing that, that I've always been taught by my elders and, and um, community members is that everyone's on a learning journey and it's a journey that never stops. So, you know, there's never a time when you should feel that you know everything because there's always something to learn. Yeah, I love that. And, and that also the, the pressure can be off a little bit too. Like you want to keep learning more, but you don't feel like you have to know everything because other people in your community know have the other pieces, exactly. as you yeah. said. Hmm. So you were explaining, yeah, the knowledge that you keep mm -hmm. or the, and, yeah. and that the family you've come from, um, you know about. So I guess uh, it would be kind of plant medicines and, and when to harvest them, how to harvest them respectfully, and how to process them into medicine, uh, which is another portion <laughs> that, that some people often forget. Um, you know, some of the medicines are are living as they would be used so you can use them um, straight from from harvest but others take processing and uh, and time um, and also uh, some of the knowledge that that i've been gifted through uh, my family is um, um, kind of uh, the natural world around us and how it fluctuates and differs based on the moon cycles so what uh, what the moon cycles mean for certain animals or plants around us, um, what it means for the, um, the ecology of a river or the ecology of a forest. What would I expect to find at a certain moon um, or time of year? Um, so, so that's some of the knowledge that has been gifted throughout kind of um, my family, but also the connections to different community members and knowledge keepers. Would you be able to tell us about um, the moon we're in now and some of the... Yeah, okay. yeah. So, I mean, we're actually in um, almost a new moon. So we're just transitioning out of the, the moon that was in August, which is the berry ripening moon. Um, and that was when kind of blueberries and, and some of our uh, our shrub berries are ripening, like huckleberries. And we're, we're kind of transitioning into the, um, the one of the first harvest moons, which is the mate calling moon. Um, and this is when your large mammals start to go into what's called rut, which is when they start to, um, the males start to stage with females and they start to uh, mate and they, they call for their mates. Um, and then that will transition into the next moon, which is the animal fattening moon or the moon when animals start to put on weight for the winter. Okay. So this episode will probably come out halfway between those moons, I'm thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because right now um, we are just at the, the end of the berry ripening moon. So... Yeah. Okay. Uh, so are there specific plants that you might harvest around this time that could be used for medicine? Yeah, I, there are some plants that you would harvest kind of uh, in the spring until um, middle to end of summer. Uh, of course, the majority of, of our medicines, the best time to harvest is when they're the freshest, so their first growth. Um, it, like in the spring, um, we would be harvesting things that you could only get in the spring, like spruce tips, um, and that comes out um, generally like uh, early June and on the on the calendar. And and those you would harvest as soon as they come out, because you want to get them as fresh as possible. Right now, uh, we're looking at kind of the end of the growing season, or, or slowly getting there. Mm. Um, so we're looking at some species that you can harvest, um, like uh, tea berry or wintergreen, which is, you know, that that species that you can really harvest all year round for medicine. Um, but um, that would be one that 
is, is great to harvest at this time of year. Um, some of our other species like blueberries, the leaves, if you're, if you're gathering um, medicines for tea, a lot of the species at this point, um, it's a little too late because um, for one, some toxins grow and, and, and accumulate in the leaves, but also the leaves start to get uh, dried out. Um, the medicine in them starts to dilute because it's drying and uh, the medicine is leaving the, the leaves. Mm. Um, it is late for birch bark. So there's uh, winter birch bark and, and summer birch bark. And um, right now you would you might be able to find some summer birch bark, but it's been a very, very dry year. So uh, it, uh, it's, it's a little bit tough to find the birch bark when it's this dry. Um, and winter birch bark is, is a thicker birch bark. Um, it, it comes with multiple layers of the bark, so it, it holds that inner layer. Um, summer birch bark is very thin because it only takes the, the paper layer on the outside. Um, birch bark is a, is a medicine as well, so if you're not using it for canoes or, or um, art or um, different kind of tools um, you could be using it for medicine um, you know okay. a yellow birch especially has very great um, skin healing and anti-aging properties mm. so it's used in in things like scar creams or um, like anti-wrinkle creams hmm. um, so it's really great for your skin um, it's also great for uh, I don't know about white birch specifically but yellow birch um, one because it, it tastes really good. It tastes like uh, mint, oh, yeah. um, but it, it's great for replenishing vitamins in your body if you take it in as a tea. Mm. Um, but also, um, it's good for um, like your your gums, so it helps with um, sores in, in your mouth. Okay. Um, if you mix it with things like plantain, which we see behind us growing, um, and uh, and maybe yarrow, uh, common yarrow. So. Yeah. A lot of the medicines are, are mixed with other medicines that do similar things. And uh, once they're combined, they, they work a little bit better than if they were just themselves. Oh, so That's interesting. That's neat. That That's mm-hmm. also making me think about how you were saying different families hold different pieces of the knowledge and how the different yeah. plants are holding different things and you put them together and they make something yeah. better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so would you be able to maybe... I don't know if you want to give any kind of advice like over the so-called radio about how to do things when it's probably better to teach people in person. But I guess just I, I was just wondering if people are listening and they're mm-hmm. interested in maybe tasting the, the minty flavor of a, a yellow birch tree mm-hmm. um, and, and how to harvest it respectfully. Because is it yeah. true that if you take too much bark off, you can damage the tree? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, birch are, are a little bit more um, sturdy when it comes to bark peeling. Um, they they have really great uh, properties in in the bark that that keep pests and and disease out. Where other trees, if you were to harvest the bark, it would likely be the end of the tree shortly because um, they're very susceptible to um, parasites and and disease. But uh, I would still say that that when you're harvesting uh, bark of a tree, which is just like the skin of a person, um, you would only do so if it's a dire need or if you're doing it to create tools. Um, with, with yellow birch, if you're looking to kind of taste that minty flavor, um, you can do that not only with the bark, but with the um, fresh growth from the twigs as well. And sometimes even the uh, bottom of a leaf, so where the leaf connects, mm. so that would be much less intrusive to the to the tree. Okay. Um, but there's other there's other plants that that taste like mint as well that you could 
harvest, uh, like wintergreen, um, where you can take a leaf or a piece of a leaf and leave the rest for the plant, and and uh, it's not taking, um, you know, the the life energy from from such an old tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wintergreen is uh, that's one of the plants that I'm I'm familiar with, and it's I I it's just such a funny experience. I, th- I think it's kind of sad because when I taste a wintergreen, um, but, you know, the first time I tasted one, I thought, oh, this tastes like toothpaste, <laughs> which is really silly because obviously the toothpaste tastes like the yeah. plant, not the other <laughs> way around. But <laughs> hope- hopefully more more kids will get a chance to taste the original flavor before yeah. they taste the artificial <laughs> flavor. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share sort of about this time of year and maybe what seasonally or traditionally is important about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, so this is this, of course, as I had just said, uh, is the mate calling moon. So, so this moon would be um, kind of when you start to uh, harvest the larger mammals. So um, now would be deer, which weren't around um, prior to contact, and even uh, quite a bit after contact. Um, so it would be uh, moose, um, caribou in this area, and you would be harvesting them. Um, kind of midway through the moon, uh, which would look like later in September, um, and and that's because um, they're they're within their rut. So if you harvest them, then there's still a chance for uh, other males to come and uh, and reproduce with the females. Uh-huh. So if you were to harvest them, like last month, um, if you harvest the does, they're they're um, still pregnant or, or just given birth to their fawns. So it would take a mother away from the fawns and then the fawns would likely not survive. Um, if you take a, a male, um, that early, they're still, they're kind of grazing for the summer. So, um, their hair and their hide is, is, uh, damaged in the summer before their winter hair comes out and, uh, and it's very hot. So it's hard to keep meat as well in the summer. So right now is the perfect time where, um, if you harvest har- harvest a male from the population, another male can can come in and then uh, and and fill that spot and still have the young for the next year. Hmm. I've got a visitor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what kind of caterpillar that is, but it's ticklish. <laughs> I'm trying to put it on a leaf. Um. Yeah. What was I? Oh, yeah. Do you have any opinions on the um? the hunting season mm-hmm. now um is it at the right time for the health of the forests and the ecosystems and the animals would you say more or less or or yeah i feel i feel um you know the provincial um hunting regulations with the the seasons they have um i i think they they align pretty well with with the moon cycles and the traditional hunt okay. um you know, I think with with deer, which weren't around, um, you know, prior to contact, that's a little bit different. Uh, with with the moose hunting um, in in Cape Breton, mm-hmm. it does actually align with the moon cycles pretty well. So, um, there the tagged hunt and and the draw um, aligns with traditional um, hunting times, maybe not traditional hunting methods, mm-hmm. um, or um, you know the tag the the draw system does minimize the amount of moose that are taken, which is good. Um, and also, it would be taking uh, males out of the population as well, which is also a good practice um, because other males can can stage up with females. Where if you take a female out, 
you're directly taking that year's um, young out of the population. Are, uh, um yeah, I, I wish I knew more about this now too, but maybe I can just ask, ask you. But <laughs> um, wh- what are the rules around, like are, are the Mi'kmaq still allowed to hunt at different times or is that something that's... Um... Yeah, I, I mean, generally the... Um, so each each specific band would have kind of... Uh, they're, they're sovereign in that they, they run their harvesting um hunting and um and fishing i know there's a lot of uh uh, debate around the treaty fishery which is kind of a a monetized fishery um the hunt which isn't monetized is generally run through each band or, or community and they would be hunting traditionally on the moons so um, I'm not sure exactly the regulations mm-hmm. around it or legalities. Um, all I know is that normally there would be a group from each community or, or from each band that would, that would harvest for the community members. And it would, they would be harvested um, respectfully along the lines of Nadigalimk and um, within the right time of year. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I just realized I, I wish I had worded that better that was a really silly way to say like are you allowed because yeah. i obviously meant by like the canadian legal system yeah, and you have yeah. your own yeah system yeah. and much more I, I, respectful i don't know there's definitely hiccups in a lot of the um uh, treaty rights and and things like that so um you know there's there's a, a difference between being allowed to do something and doing it but still going through a legal process um, because treaty rights technically would allow um, a harvest um, whenever needed mm-hmm. or whenever required um, and and that means not just hunting but fishing um, medicine harvest mm-hmm. um, forestry practices so that technically uh, based on the treaties would allow that harvest but we still see court cases of harvest um, harvesting eels harvesting elvers um, harvesting uh, lobster. So we still see those court cases and, and battles, even though the treaties protect those rights. So yeah. it's a, I think it's a bigger question. <laughs> I don't think that I can answer it. Okay. And I'm not really sure if, if anyone can fully answer that question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for trying to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> um, yeah. And then when I think of like the, the reasons of when and why you would harvest in Mi'kmaq culture has to do more with I mean has to do with the relationship to the mm-hmm. land and what's healthy for for the rest of the species and the ecosystem more than any kind of legality so that's a different yeah. thing and you did mention yeah. um, can you explain I'd like to say it properly <laughs> can you say it one more time sure uh, Nadigalimk can you yeah. explain Nadigalimk yeah please sure so uh, Nadigalimk is um, coined a concept but in reality it's it's a way of living it, it basically outlines how we can survive and how we live within the natural world in a sustainable way and with respect. And um, I hear the cicadas. Yeah. <laughs> They're very loud. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, four main pieces of, of Nadigalimk, pillars if you'd like to call them that, because if without one of them, it would fall to the ground. Mm. Um, so the first being respect. So we always do everything um, with respect of all of the beings around us. Um, the second is uh, relationship. So 
um, not only within the creation story, but within all of our um, culture, we feel that we are relations to everything around us because we all come from the same uh, the same place. We all come from Usikamu or Mother Earth. So coming from that same place, we are related to everything here. Um, and that relationship is very important when you think of harvest because we know that if we are to harvest something or or take something, then we have put ourselves in the cycle of that um, forest, of that population, of that uh, river. So if we're harvesting a fish, we have now become a part of that river. Um, so we're taking food away from other things that would that would be living there and needing food. We're taking an animal away that might be eating food that it needs to be taken away. So, for example, um, if you were to harvest a salmon, salmon will be bringing their young to these rivers, so that's a that's a good food source for other beings. Um, but they're also eating things within the river that, uh, if they're not eaten, could be detrimental to other species. So it's a very large kind of interconnected web that we fit into, and uh, there's not really a... Um, kind of a, a you do this and this happens answer mm-hmm. it's a it's a you do this you harvest this and we just understand that we will never know the impacts fully um, but we understand that we do have impacts and there is a relationship and we have to be mindful and respectful of that relationship the third um, pillar is responsibility so us as the youngest beings of creation and um, the only beings on Mother Earth that really can um, can create change, a, a large change that would change the entire Earth, um, we have that responsibility of protection and also of, um, of making sure that, the, that Mother Earth is healthy. Um, so that's our responsibility because we are the youngest and we are the only ones that can do it, that can create that large change that would impact all of Mother Earth. Uh, and the last pillar is reciprocity, which is kind of one of the harder ones to, to wrap your head around. Um, but it's linked really well with relationship where um, anything that we do has an impact on the greater um, the greater collective of beings. And I guess that... Um, that idea of our relationship with with the natural world um, implies that there is a reciprocity of a give and take. So if we're taking something, you know, we should be mindful of what we're giving back. We shouldn't take too much because there are so many other beings that need the same thing we do. And all of this concept or way of life is, is extremely hard to explain. <laughs> but... Uh, and, and I am in no way an expert on, on the, the concept or the way of life. I just try my best to, to live with, a, um, with mindfulness of that relationship, uh, knowing that things that I do in, in the world, the choices I make, do have repercussions, whether they be negative or positive, um, and, and changes in, in the natural world if I am to harvest or alter um, the natural world. Um, one of the ways that I try to respect everything is is an offering of tobacco, um, and and tobacco is one of the sacred medicines, and it's usually the medicine that we gift. We we gift the tobacco when we harvest um, as a way of showing respect and thanking the being that we've we've taken the life of. Um, but also uh, in in ceremonies like smudge ceremonies, we will gift the tobacco to the smudge and to creator. That way, um, when we're doing a smudge, we're kind of asking for our negative energy 
energy to be cleansed and also pr- for our prayers to be heard. So we have to gift that to the smudge for that to happen. Without that gift, um, you're not giving anything to to the smudge. Um, you're not giving anything like a tobacco offering to an elder or a knowledge keeper. Um, it's that reciprocal relationship where you're giving that tobacco in return for their knowledge or their time. Mm. Um, so as a non-Mi'kmaq person, if I was to um, have the privilege of talking to an elder, would I, mm-hmm. could I gift, would I, would it be appropriate yeah, for me to yeah. give them tobacco? Definitely. And uh, so, so what I've been taught is when you are approaching an elder um, and, and, and in practice, um, when you ask something of an elder, you give tobacco first because you're giving that tobacco to then ask them something. So um, if, if I were to ask an elder about a ceremony or about knowledge or um, to help me with something, I would always give tobacco first um, prior to receiving that uh, knowledge or, or, or anything. So mm-hmm. um, there are certain kind of um, uh, cultural customs, I guess, and I guess that would be kind of an important one when, when interacting with elders or, or communities. Mm. And, and so it doesn't have to be tobacco if you're harvesting. Um, something I like to think is if I were uh, a, a medicine um, and trying to grow and I was gifting some of myself to someone, um, I don't have any use for tobacco, but I would love some water. <laughs> so sometimes it's it's not the tobacco that that takes your intentions to that being; it's your your actions. So gifting water, um, maybe gifting uh, food to animals if you're harvesting, um, gifting that food to other animals in the area, mm-hmm. or um, just being mindful of of that relationship you share with them, and the reciprocity of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about how you can benefit the surrounding beings by gifting something. Um, and, in, and in relation to people, sometimes that gift is your time or your knowledge or um, just being there for someone listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have to be tobacco. Um, tobacco is just a medicine that holds our intentions. And it's, it's a, a way of us to portray those intentions to a being. So when we're using tobacco as an offering uh, to a harvested animal or plant or to the land itself, we put our intentions into it and then we gift it. Um, so it's very important to put your intentions um, or it's just tobacco. That's It's just a medicine that's being gifted. I see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So would tobacco have grown wild in this region? We do still have uh, okay. some wild tobacco. Yeah, okay. it's, uh, The wild tobacco here is, is pretty small. Um, and it's, it is pretty rare to find, but uh, it does not look like the uh, larger kind of um, uh, tobacco that you would see on farms for like smoking. Mm. Um, it's, it's very small, and, uh, but it still has a beautiful flower, and it is the traditional tobacco that would have been used here. Ah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, well that's neat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, when, when you were explaining um, the four pillars of... Um, shoot. <laughs> Netagalumk. Perfect. Okay, good. Um, I couldn't help but think about when, when you were talking about when, when you take, when you harvest a plant or an animal and that recognizing that one has an impact but not knowing like fully what the impact is. Yeah. I couldn't help but think what an amazing statement that is um, Mm. from someone from a culture who's been here for thousands and thousands of years Mm -hmm. when now 
people are here thinking they can to take whatever they yeah. want and, and, <laughs> and also understand the impacts and, yeah. and act accordingly. Um, that must drive you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, um, oftentimes it, it just makes me, um, sad. Yeah. Um, because when we see things like, like clear cuts, which unfortunately we're in a society where that's kind of the, the best option for them. Um, you know, gain the most money with the least amount of effort. Um, it, it's sad because the, the entire area, not only the trees or the, uh, maybe the deer or the bears or, or the larger mammals, but every single being that would have used that area will be impacted negatively. And also the surrounding area will be impacted negatively. All of the surrounding trees that are next to the clear cut will be um, susceptible to wind damage. The exposed extra sunlight could could um, cause uh, burns to uh, animals if they're if they're there. So like uh, dry up the soil, more erosion, um, things like uh, amphibians that might be using uh, things called vernal pools, which are pools that are only there for for the wet season, so the spring. Um, those places are so important for their for their life cycle, mm. and if we clear cut around them, we lose that that habitat for good. So it, it's so important that we we really think about it holistically and about every single being that would be using that area. Mm. You know, we 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 tend to think that uh, we own the monopoly of <laughs> of everything on Earth, yeah. um, but it, it most certainly is not the case. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's. I, I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when when you were saying before that it's um, some of the the concepts are very hard to explain, and I was thinking, um, yeah, sorry, I'm also very aware. Like I'm I'm trying to talk to you as a like a settler person, and I <laughs> feel like I understand, or I or deep down, like I, I agree or no no, you know, when you say some of your concepts, but not being. Um, make my sometimes it's hard to even know like what you know my connection that i feel to the land what's appropriate mm-hmm. or how do i talk to other people who really know and i i might not know in the same way um but just something about sometimes it seems like one can f- can kind of understand something and you either feel it and you understand it or you don't and and how do you explain if it's kind of like a deep felt sense of feeling. Yeah. yeah. And, and the fact that it, you know, it's coined a, a concept, but mm. in reality, it, it truly is a, a way of life. Um, and it's, a, it's something that, um, you know, every choice that, that I make, um, the way that I live my life and kind of the, like annually, the way that I live my life, but also my entire life. It's just kind of what, what drives me or I guess what drives my choices mm-hmm. um, the interwork interworking pieces of Nadigalimk and uh, it, it, it's hard to describe because it's just kind of what I have done my entire life um, and now taking a really close look at why I do what I do and, and think how I think and make the choices that I do um, have I only realized kind of what Nadigalimk is um, you know, prior to this, it was just 
what I was living. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a weird thing to kind of take a step back and and look at yourself and your own choices and, and think, why do I do I choose this? You know, why do I give respect to all of the beings around me? Um, why is that important? How do I fit in the natural world? Um, and why do I know where I fit <laughs> in the mm. natural world? Um, those questions prior to kind of learning um, uh, what Nadigalimk is uh, or what it what it encompasses, um, I really didn't have answers for. And, and now I'm starting to have answers for why um, why I and, and many other uh, Mi'kmaq people or indigenous people, why they live like that and why they make the choices they do and, and give respect and understand the relationship and... Um, and, and understand that, that reciprocal kind of uh, relationship with the entire world around them. And I guess, you know, living here for, for tens of thousands of years, you kind of, you need to live like that. <laughs> because if you don't, uh, you won't be here long. <laughs> so over time, these these way, ways of life have kind of uh, slowly evolved into into something that we, we could truly live on this planet um, for as long as the planet li- wants to live, <laughs> right? Mm. Um, you know, we can we can live beside all of the other beings in a way that that they are just as important as we are. Um, that's one of the mo- more important things in in that relationship and those reciprocal relationships is that we are all equal, and there's no being that is superior than another. Um, so when we are harvesting medicines, we are taking the lives of things. Um, that's something that we have to keep in mind. And I think that's where that disconnect comes from. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that have the utmost respect for wildlife and the forest, but they don't see those beings as equal to them. So the choices that they make are a bit easier in harvesting or doing something that I would consider disrespectful, but they may consider very respectful, um, you know, and I think that's where this, the way that we're, we're working in the forests and the way that we're living with the natural world is, is sort of shifting away from, because I feel like, you know, maybe, I don't even want to say um, 20 years ago, but 20, 30, 40 and, and further, um, that respect was not there at all. And now I feel like we're moving in a positive direction slowly, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not so much a top-down; it's a bottom-up approach. So it's the people that are that are pushing this change, which is good um, if there's enough, uh, and, and the power is is in numbers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious about what you think about what could be sort of respectful forestry practices. I know you probably you. you probably don't consider this an area of you know so-called expertise but (laughs) there's a person that lives here that knows about you know Mm -hmm. thinks about thinks about things holistically and has a long obviously cultural tradition here Mm -hmm. is there anything you wanted to comment on just as your personal opinion about how we could um use use the forest for (laughs) human yeah i struggle with this a bit because you know we're at a population now where i don't feel we could ever move to sustainable, full sustainable forestry practices. Um, the same goes for sustainable harvest of, of animals and, and fish. 
Um, I, I, I truly don't think we could do that at the population levels we are. Um, as far as the forestry practice, I think is the most respectful and, and linked with kind of uh, uh, the way that um, the Mi'kmaq culture or, or, or Nadigalimk would, would tell me it, it would be a selective cut that takes into account all of the beings within the forest um, and includes non-timber forest products in a way that is respectful to the area. So um, never harvesting more than a third of what's there, um, for example, um, and only harvesting trees when they're at an age um, that they should be harvested. So if you're if you're looking at a forest and you want a certain product out of that forest, only harvest the trees that can give you that product, and never harvest more than a third of them. Mm. Um, and then during that harvest, um, you know you don't have to, but personally, I would include certain ceremonies like um, tobacco offering ceremonies if I'm ever harvesting anything. Um, one thing I like to do when entering a forest is offer tobacco because the forest as an entity has knowledge that it can gift and every forest that I walk into I learn something. So uh, I always gift tobacco before and and at every harvest um, that I do. Mm. Is there like a story or a memory that's coming to your mind about something that you've um, learned about a forest? Well this forest um, I guess uh, I like to look at the the kind of distribution of the trees around and uh, and where they like to grow and where they don't. So looking looking at kind of the um, the forest floor and and seeing what the, what the forest floor is made up of, um, we can see kind of behind us here. There's a lot of pine needles laying on the forest floor, um, which means of course that there are a lot of pines growing in that area. But what it also means is that the soil there would be very acidic. Um, because it doesn't get a lot of uh, deciduous leaves which kind of break down quicker and put more organic matter into the soil. Um, So the ground cover on that forest would be certain species that like acidic soils. Um, But then going, you know, maybe 100 feet that way, we have way more deciduous trees and the ground cover is a lot thicker. So you can see through this ground cover over here and then when you look this way, you can barely see through it all. Mm-hmm. And it's different species that are growing there. Um, so looking at kind of who likes to live where, um, uh, how they're living, if they're doing good, if there's a lot of them in one spot, um, if there's a being there that you don't feel should be there, why it's growing there. Um, when I when I teach around reciprocity, I like to teach the um, relationships of animals rather than the relationships of us. Um, one of the relationships that I like to think of is is birds and um, berry uh, shrubs, so like blueberries or huckleberries. If you think of um, kind of evolution around a blueberry bush, um, it would be much better for a blueberry bush just to create seeds rather than creating a fleshy berry that takes more of its energy mm. and um, and making that berry packed with vitamins. So for a blueberry, it would be much easier just to create the seeds and drop them. Um, but what, what that creates is competition with your young. Instead of growing seeds that are um, kind of pressure loaded that will shoot away or seeds that are light enough to float in the air, they created berries, which are these beautiful little fleshy uh, fruits that are great tasting and they're something that certain birds rely on. Birds have a digestive tract 
that um, does not fully digest the seeds. So when the berry goes through the bird's digestive tract, um, the seed is still viable. So the relationship between the bird and the berry, uh, or the berry shrub, is one that the bird is gaining the berry from the berry shrub. Um, it's gaining the, the nutrients, the vitamins. The berry is gaining access to more land. So it's gaining access to have its young further away so that it doesn't directly compete for resources. Mm. Which means that as a collective, as the greater population of, of blueberry bushes, they're better off if the birds are around and the birds are better off if the blueberries are around because then they have food to survive. So that reciprocal relationship between the two only works if they both kind of evolve and and live with one another. Mm. If one of them is taken out of the equation, then we would have um, a lot of spots where there would be very sickly blueberry bushes um, because they're all kind of just growing from the same spot and there's no vector to get them anywhere else and uh, they would be directly competing with their young for all the resources in the ground and wasting all their energy making the making berry the when berries. it's no longer necessary exactly. yeah so are there no other animals that you know of that have that digestive tract that wouldn't harm the seeds uh, not that I know of. I think oh. birds birds are, in this area at least, wow. <laughs> um, birds would be one of the only, because the mammals that are eating the berries would digest the seeds fully, uh, or at least to a point where they're not viable. Hmm. Um, and the same thing goes with, in southern regions, uh, hot peppers, or peppers that have, I believe the word is cap capsaicin. Well, birds don't have uh, the ability to taste that. Mammals oh. will actually create the seeds uh, infertile because we digest them and birds won't so the spiciness in a, a pepper is so that the um <gasps> the mammals won't eat them wow. but the birds will so they're these beautiful little fruits that no mammals will eat because they're too spicy um, and the birds love them and give them nutrients but then they also create that vector of transporting seeds um, further from the parent plant mm, that's amazing yeah have you been noticing this little, yeah, that's yeah. the same caterpillar. I thought I put it on the ground, <laughs> caught him or her or however caterpillars work, uh, yeah. but I saw him climbing up here and then stopped there for a little while and now he's heading back down, I guess, to my face eventually. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, just on a neat side note, I, I saw somebody that did um, time-lapse photography with a monarch um, coming out of oh, its wow. chrysalis. Yeah, it was yeah. the most fantastical thing. Oh, yes. That would be amazing. <laughs> I, I was able um, to see a dragonfly do that from the larval state. Um, when I worked with uh, a local NGO, we were doing some, some um, fish captures. And, of course, the dragonflies have their larval and, and nymph stages in the water. And we had parked our vehicle next to the water. And when we came out, it was around uh, a, a good time, I guess, midsummer, um, for dragonflies to be coming out and, and starting their, their kind of uh, from nymph to adult stage. And there were a couple of them that had attached to the tire of our vehicle. And uh, the dragonfly was pulling itself out. And, uh, of course, when they first come out, their wings are all wrinkly, and, and until the fluid kind of expands the wings, they're really small and cute. <laughs> I've never seen that. Oh, I've never yeah, seen it. It was the first time I've seen it, you know, coming out of that uh, that, that nymph body, oh. and it was extraordinary to see oh, that. Yeah. yeah. I bet. Hmm. Well, maybe I can just ask you an open question. Sure. If there 
is anything else you'd really like to talk about or share with with folks? Hmm. Well, I guess there there is um, some things around um, like cultural teachings, and um, one of the things that I like to to preface any teaching that I'm doing around the Mi'kmaq culture is when I teach the culture, it's the teachings that I was given. Um, and it does, like, some of the cultural teachings differ between elders, between communities, because they were taught by their elders and and so on. So each community were, were given somewhat different teachings, all linked to the same teaching. Um, but there are just certain little things that are that differ between the communities. So the teachings I've received are ones that I've received from family members, um, ones that I received from knowledge keepers um, from different communities. So I kind of have gathered um, uh, knowledge of, of medicines and traditional harvest and uh, and Nadugalimk from um, from this region all the way to New Brunswick, where I went to university, um, and even PEI, where I was prior to university um, at college. So. Uh, cultural teachings that I have are are my my experience and the teachings that were shared directly with me and um, and of course they can differ between communities and also um, so I have a, a good friend that that lives in a community in in the Gaspe Peninsula of Quebec and of course that far away the forest differs a bit. Um, so some of the medicines would be different. The timings might be different. That's a more northern region. Um, they may have a, a lengthened period of of winter um, or an earlier uh, fall. And uh, the timing might be different by like a week or two of when you would actually harvest, when the fish would be migrating. Um, so there's different because um, the Mi'kmaq people, and I mean all indigenous people for that matter, are so connected to the natural world, the teachings and the, um, the timing of, of their harvests and um, just the timing of, of every um, cultural practice that they have would be directly linked to their community's um, ecosystem and their community's climate. So um, there's there's so many different things, and even within the teachings, um, like teachings of how to harvest something. In some areas, um, you would harvest it one way, and others you would harvest it a different way. Uh, one of the things um, that I've found very different, and really two distinct um, harvesting te- techniques, is uh, sweetgrass. So some of the uh, knowledge keepers and elders will tell you that you can only harvest it by pulling the roots and all. Um, and that's the only way to harvest others. And how I have been taught is to always cut the base um, out of respect of the sweetgrass. And as sweetgrass is Mother Earth's hair, um, we always cut it rather than pull um, because we don't want to have our hair pulled. But there are cultural teachings that say the opposite. You should always pull it from the roots. Never, It's a sacred medicine, so you never uh, bring a tool between you and the sacred medicine. So there's there's two very different teachings, but both being respectful in their own way. Mm. Um, so there's there's those little differences between communities, between elders, um, just basically where they were gifted their knowledge and and who was their um, their knowledge keeper or elder that gifted it, mm. and where they gained theirs. So there's so many differences. Each teaching is a is a little bit different, but they all have 
the um the 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 background of of Nadigalim built into the teachings so hmm. yeah so then with that in mind do you do you i'm just thinking kind of like a mainstream or dominant cultural ideas are like this is right and this is wrong or like yeah. this is true but so this other thing can't be true so when you come across things that are slightly different like that how what is the reaction or how do you i I don't think that there are many people um in our community that would say that one would be right and one would be wrong i think that um there's a little bit more um acceptance with teachings and that an acceptance of of a teaching might just be a little different rather than being a better teaching or a worse teaching. Um, I think it's just that teachings differ and uh, cultural practices differ a bit. And it's really whatever feels right um, to you. And, um, you know, I, I, I do truly believe that a lot of things um, that happen to us and that, that uh, you know, you might think, well, that's kind of weird or, or um, you know, I, I like to always go back to the smudge because it's a ceremony I do often. Um, you know, sometimes I'll put a little bit of sage in, but the smoke that comes out is so much. And it's always lining up when I have a really bad day or something has gone um, kind of wrong in, in my own personal life and I just have uh, a lot of negative energy. So I always, you know, like to think that um, it's 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 a will of creator. So, um, you know, if, if the smudge is really, really strong, then I must have needed it or whomever is getting smudged must have needed it. And the same goes for um, the cultural teachings. So if if you're taught a certain way, then that is the way that Creator wishes you to do that. Um, mm-hmm. Like the sweet gra- grass harvest, if you're taught to do it with um, with a tool, then you know maybe Creator wished that you would have learned how to make that tool, and and that's the reason why you learn how to make that tool is to harvest sweet grass. Mm-hmm. So I think there's. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of acceptance within the community, and uh, if if cultural teachings differ a bit, um, it's it's not so much one is right and one is wrong. It's just that they're a little different. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for going into more yeah, detail yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess hearing you say that is, uh, I just love to to understand better that if the, if at the root of whatever choices or teaching, whatever choices are being made based on teachings, um, the root is, is a respect yeah. that it might come through in different ways. Or like you said, the meaning behind it might be different. Mm-hmm. Um, that just seems like maybe a good general lesson for the, for the rest of us too <laughs> in, in, yeah, um, yeah. in respect and, and tolerance and, um, understanding, I guess. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Walal and Sean. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank um, you. I'm so grateful to have been gifted this knowledge from a local Mi'kmaq knowledge keeper. And I know there is so much more to learn and to understand about how to relate to our natural world and how to behave as humans. I often felt awkward with my questions, like I didn't know how to ask things properly, but I am quite sure it was better to ask than to be afraid of making a mistake. And hopefully, we will all get better at communicating respectfully over time with practice, and as we continue to learn about the ways of being and knowing of the original peoples of these lands. As I mentioned earlier, I have decided this would be a good place to pause this podcast for a few months for a few reasons. 
For one thing, an organization that I immensely respect will be launching a limited series podcast later this month with a similar concept to Shared Ground. This is a project of Community Forests International, based in New Brunswick. The podcast will be available through all major streaming platforms and will be called Below the Canopy. I imagine we will all want to check that out. And personally, I have some other exciting things in the works, including another limited series podcast through How We Thrive about the role of elders in different cultures. If you want more information about either of these new podcasts, I suggest going to their websites and scrolling to the bottom to sign up for their e-newsletters. I will put the website addresses for both Community Forests International and How We Thrive in the show notes. So, I thought it wouldn't hurt to free up some listening time for folks. I will continue to meet with people for forest-related conversations throughout the fall, hopefully including a trip to Unamagi, also known as Cape Breton, and Shared Ground episodes will resume in the new year. I am hoping that you will take a minute now to subscribe to or follow Shared Ground, which you can do wherever you are listening to this episode. That way, I know you will be alerted when episodes restart, or when a bonus episode comes out. I wish you enjoyment of the harvest moons, and we will meet again in a few moons' time. Until then, fellow humans. Thank you.